Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. We are sounding the trumpets today. Paul Merkello is the principal trumpeter of the Montreal Symphony Orchestra and tours internationally as a concert soloist. His latest recording is the enlightened trumpet. Later in the hour, we'll listen to some examples and learn more about this sparkling music. First, let's preview a new movie with Brian Tyree Henry in the lead role. I am locked out of my apartment. I repeat, I'm locked out of my apartment. Man down, call me back. My keys are right there, right there. Okay, I'm gonna need to see some ID. My, my license is in my apartment. No one's got keys for you? No. You just move in? I've lived here for three years. Weird, I've never seen you before. Hey, it's Charles from Two Floors Down. Hello. Your fellow building inhabitant, Charles. Isha's ex. In the outside story, the lead character, played by Brian Tyree Henry, learns that to understand what's inside of us, we must go outside. The movie is a highlight of the Atlanta Film Festival and will screen tonight at Pullman Yard. Kazimir Noskowski wrote and directed The Outside Story. He joins us now via Zoom. Kazimir, welcome to City Lights. Oh, hi, Lois. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for that lovely description. That like, that, like got me teary-eyed <laughs> to hear that. Well, the movie <laughs> had me teary-eyed at a bunch of different spots and laughing as well. And that that was quite something to pull it off. Oh, that, that makes me so happy. Thank you so much. Well, to begin, without spoilers, of course, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. would you summarize the plot of this story? Sure. The Outside Story, as you said, stars Brian Tyree Henry, and he plays uh, an introverted, heartbroken uh, video editor who you know, on a day when he wants to be really wallowing in self-pity and just staying in his house and just locking himself down uh, before, before it was cool, he winds up locking himself out of his apartment 
one of the simplest problems that's probably happened to all of us in one you know, way or another, um, and is basically forced onto a little bit of a uh, Brooklyn odyssey around his block and is forced to meet his neighbors that he's previously avoided, meet his community, see his surroundings and, and discover all the life that he's taken for granted. And uh, it's, it's really, that's really what it is. It's about, you know, a simple problem that kind of unfolds and unfolds and unfolds. And we watch someone deal with the choices that he's made in his life and um, figure out, you know, the main part about his, uh, this, uh, there's a relationship that may have, you know, uh, imploded and him kind of seeing it in a new light, getting a new perspective perhaps because of this uh, situation that he's in. So I think that's, I, I'm, I'm always so tempted to go into spoilers, but uh, you're right, let's, let's, let's stay vague for now. So I think that that sums it up. Yes, we want viewers <laughs> to be surprised and I think they will be delighted too. What first gave you the idea for this story? Well, I, I, I've been making short films and documentaries for a long time. And I, uh, and I, I live in New York City. I've, I've always lived in New York City. And um, I, my documentaries are usually about very kind of simple kind of premises about the things in my life that I notice and that I realize I've been taking for granted. And I've made films about the local corner store called Bodega. I've made films about baseball stadiums, going to a baseball game. Um, films about people I meet in the city. And I think I wanted to, um, I'd always wanted to make a feature. And I, I was inspired to kind of look at that, create a character that is forced to re-examine how he looks at the world. You know, how we all, in our human instinct, we all take things for granted. It's, I mean, you kind of have to do it to survive. You can't really stop and wonder at the world every time you're on your way to work. And, but at the same time, I think a lot, you know, we lose things, we, we miss things that are right next to us that are really worth noticing. So with all that in mind, I tried to think of what would be the, you know, the greatest way to get a character into that frame of mind. And I just thought, you know, I've never seen a movie about someone locking themselves out. <laughs> <laughs> and I've always kind of loved movies that have that seem on the face to have simple premises and then unfold into something more intricate and kind of in the flow of life that become kind of more complicated. And so I just thought that was a really nice way. When I've actually been locked out many times, I'm sorry to, sorry to admit. And I, every time I've been locked out, I've found it a really kind of, while it's very annoying, it is also usually a poetic kind of disruption to your routine. You know, we, we fall into routines so easily. And so when I've been locked out, I just, th I just thought of those times I would get inspired I would look at it and say, you know, this would make a great movie because look at me, I'm sitting on my stoop. I don't have my shoes on. <laughs> uh, these people are walking by. They're, some people are being super kind to me, strangers, um, letting me use their phone or, you know, letting me climb out on their fire escape. And I just thought it was the, I just thought it was really a great little framework. Also, I wanted to kind of show a side of New York that I don't feel like is seen in the movies uh, too often. I'm, I'm sure there are times when it is, but you know, show a kind of rich tapestry of characters that uh, of the New York that I know that's kind of, you know, more interesting um, and more more complicated than I think your normal New York big film, if you will. So I'd say those were those were some of the premises that kind of got me started. Well, the film has beautiful shots of Brooklyn and 
you do not use a heavy hand in conveying um, the complexities of New York life. And yet, it, it, it all, you also bring out the kindness that exists in um, uniquely New York situations. <laughs> um, the characters whom we meet, such as uh, the police officer giving the parking tickets and the delivery guy who is something of a philosopher and questions <laughs> what's wrong with tipping, you know. But I, I think that in many ways, New York itself feels like a character. Was that intentional? Absolutely. I, I would say that I, I my, I did want to show show New York, illustrate New York. And again, I grew up in New York. I've lived in Manhattan and Brooklyn all my life. And I'm always, when I see a New York film, I love New York films. There's so many of them that are that are wonderful. But I always feel like it's it, it, it films go kind of broad. You know, they don't go into that. They don't drill down into really exactly what you're talking about: the kindnesses, the little details, the shocks, the little. You know, it's all. I feel like there's a kind of archetypal understanding of New York that's out there in Hollywood in film. And I do think that there are, there are many movies that do get into the nitty gritty, but then to get into the nitty gritty without necessarily getting into the like depressing, frustrating, even violent parts of New York, but actually to like really just look at like normal everyday life on the block. I mean, I think because of my documentary background, I've always been fascinated by making everyday life poetic that there is or, or i should say there is poetry in everyday life and, and it can be so compelling um and that if you can if you can kind of really bring that to the screen i i just always find that a really interesting thing to see and usually very inspiring and and having said that i think on the flip side i also wanted to make this a movie that was appealing to people who aren't just new yorkers it is a love letter to new york but i hope it also speaks to just someone who takes their town for granted, someone who takes their city for granted, be it a city or a rural community, you know, just that, that you kind of get used to where you live and that if you actually stop, pull the kind of bail back from your eyes, there's so much amazing stuff right next to you, right down the street, right down the road, the dirt road, the block. Um, so I was really trying to be kind of universal while at the same time using what I know, which is New York City. Mm. Charles, the film's protagonist, played by Brian Tyree Henry, writes eulogies for celebrities who aren't dead yet. <laughs> mm -hmm. And he is also a documentarian. Are we a little bit autobiographical here? <laughs> What's the inspiration for Charles? Well, I think that, again, I, I am someone who's been very trained to use what you know. My parents are artists. Are, my, my father was a painter. My mother is a sculptor and a painter and, you know, abstract artists, but they still kind of mine their life. And so I definitely have mined my life for this character in this film. Like, I think it makes sense. Those are the things you know the best. And I am someone, uh, speaking to Charles's job, I am someone who has edited in memoriams for celebrities who aren't dead yet. I used to uh, work at AMC and we would, that was, a, it wasn't my only job, but that was one of the main things we would do is they would have these kind of 
pre-made um, obituary videos. It's, it's so macabre for these celebrities. And so every year or two, they'd say, hey, we need to update Clint Eastwood's obituary. You know, he just made Sully. He just made, you know, whatever film. We got to get that in there. And then if, if and when he passes away, we can run this obituary right away. I always found that such a kind of uh, grim job. I mean, I think it's for a good cause. I mean, I think you are trying to capture someone's legacy and someone's life, but to kind of be pre-working on it, you know, they do this in the New York Times. They write the obituaries years in advance for people so that it's really ready to go right away. I just thought that was the greatest job for a depressed character. <laughs> well, I know. Yeah. And I think in the days of, in the heyday of print journalism, that was something that people were first assigned. I think even in journalism classes, it may still be assigned to write a bi. I believe it. I always found it fat, like a, just such a, I mean, I, there's a great documentary called Obit that's about the New York Times obituary writers. And they have these file cabinets with like the little, you know, note cards on note cards on note cards about such and such political or, you know, famous figures. And the, Again, I just think that's so, there's something so grim and I suppose something inspiring about that, that kind of job. Um, but and can I just say one other thing about the character? You know, the other thing is, I think when I approach a script, I just have to, I can't say enough about Brian Tyree Henry. Oh, I was hoping we could talk about him. Absolutely, we have to, it's, come on, this is Atlanta, we have to do it. He is such a wonderful, wonderful person, actor, collaborator, genius, beautiful person. And I have to say that I, I love working with actors. It's probably my favorite part of directing this film, of, of directing in general. And we definitely, this character, like, yes, there are things that come from my life, but I left it, I really wanted to work with an actor who would make this character their own completely. Like, I'm not a director who needs it, to, you need to fit my parameters. It's very much the other way around. I want to give you some like general ideas. I want to give you some general themes and lines, but I want you to really make it your own. And Brian Terry Henry was like the quintessential elevation of a character. I worked with so many great actors on this, um, but they were really like orbiting around the beautiful gravity of Brian, who's so funny, but also has so much heart, so much like electricity. So yeah, it just, I really, I he really, I think, you know, made this character whole. Oh, well, it comes through, all of those qualities come through brilliantly. And mm. I thought, even before I watched the film, I thought it was so welcome to see that Brian Tyree Henry had a lead role and a romantic mm. role at that. And mm -hmm. when I saw him in... If Beale Street could talk, I was astonished by his range. And all of that comes out. You know, the full spectrum from his comic talent to the pathos, it all comes out in the outside story. Oh, thank you. I, I mean, thank you for on his behalf. He's he's amazing. I mean, I can't. I really can't say enough about how what a wonderful actor he is. I, I Atlanta is really probably my favorite TV show, and he's so great in Atlanta. He's so kind of, you know, with a kind of um, laid back kind of feeling to his character. Someone who goes with the flow, but at the same time, 
there is so much like drama within him that is like just like radiating out from him and it really was look all directors say this they're lucky to work with such and such actor i really cannot like express how much gratitude i have that he you know that he is blowing up he's in he's going to be in he's in everything right now and uh the fact that he was able to uh do this film you know he's in every shot pretty much he's yes. in every scene you know uh it's really it was such a kind of undertaking of his and just so inspiring to be around him um i, I yeah i love him he was amazing let's talk about the other characters and uh, i should add the entire cast is very strong the neighborhood police officer officer z slater Mm-hmm. She exhibits a surprising amount of depth. What was your inspiration for her character? Wow, I mean Sunita Mani, you know, just another wonderful, like, just brought made that character something, you know, really three dimensional. Also, really, she changed that character in a way that I loved, where she made. I kind of always I pictured her as a kind of like a almost like a angrier kind of presence who then softens and she actually made her this kind of dry wit who's really just like enjoying giving tickets and really <laughs> hates the New York City drivers and the the entitlement that they have and I love I got I love how she you know really enhanced uh Slater and made Slater into someone who I think is like so compelling my inspiration really was that when you're making a film about your block or your street you know you're looking around for the institutions the things that the fixtures that again you deal with every day but maybe you don't really notice you don't so i always i have a car in new york city i'm ashamed to admit and i i have to deal with alternate side of the street parking and i often think of the traffic the parking cops as antagonists uh people who are just out there to kind of to hurt me to give me that ticket but of course they're human beings come on and they're regular people and I I guess I wanted to make a character that starts out as this antagonist um that then becomes uh an ally but not without you know some surprising complications to it and so I think I think it just was a natural fit to have a parking cop someone who everyone hates just show us just like a little bit more of the depth of who they are and i think hopefully if they become an ally that it's a bit of a surprise but out of left field that they become one because they're in such a you know uh frustrating position to begin with writer and director kasimir noskowski talking about his film the outside story we'll return with more of this interview after a short break you're tuned to wabe atlanta The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. That's r i c h m o n t.edu. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com/freechecking. 
Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Let's get back to my conversation with the writer and director, Casimir Naskowski, about his new movie, The Outside Story. Brian Tyree Henry plays Charles, who learns to connect with people and life around him after he's locked out of his apartment. Charles's bond with a young girl, his neighbor who lives downstairs, Elena, that friendship is very touching. Would you talk about the relationship that develops between him and this young girl? Oh, I'd love to. She, uh, Elena is played by Olivia Edward, who is on the show Better Things uh, on FX. Another just someone I liked watching on TV and was lucky enough to get them to be in my film. And Charles is someone who lives in a building with, with a few neighbors and, you know, doesn't know them. He's just not that kind of person who goes and investigates who lives above him, below him, to the left and to the right of him. And so the film is really about just discovering these like little worlds that are all around him. And so Elena is this, the, this upstairs neighbor who you find out is in a bit of a troubling situation. And I think right there, what I wanted to do was, you were talking about how the film has a lot of kindness in it. Um, uh, the characters, I should say, exhibit a lot of kindness and there's, it's, it's a comedy. But at the same time, I thought to be true to what it's like to have neighbors, to, to what it's like to meet the world, you're, you are going to meet kind people more than not, but you're also going to meet people who are in bad situations, who are in trouble, who are damaged, who are in danger. And so Elena becomes also an ally to Charles, someone who can help him both, you know, literally and also spiritually, but also I think demonstrates that not everybody's world is like peaches and cream, everything's okay. I think, I think for Charles, he kind of assumes that everyone is happier than he is. I would say that's his, his take on life, is that everyone's doing great, the world is just opening the door for them, and for him, it's a struggle. And I think Elena is meant to demonstrate that that's really not true, and that in fact, we're all struggling. We're all fighting battles. And she's someone who I think has come, made some peace with her lot in life, um, but, and has this, has an amazing talent potentially, um, but is kind of like dealing with uh, her problems, her bigger problems um, in a different way than Charles. And I think there provides a new kind of understanding for him when their relationship deepens. Yeah, she has a mother who is emotionally abusive and, and Charles is sort of horror struck by that. And he becomes sort of like a tender uncle to her, but she teaches him a whole lot as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And her mother played by Maria Dizia, another like wonderful, wonderful actor, you know, a theater actor, but also someone who you've seen in probably, you know, a hundred movies and TV shows. And really, I thought bravely kind of brought a character. We talked a lot about likability in this film and being kind of a likable presence, you know, but she has, she has to do this different thing. She has to kind of be shocking and a little scary and that she dove so, so far into that 
I just, again, I mean, I, I'm as kind of grateful to her as to anyone just for taking that on. And I think really uh, beautifully illustrating a character like that who is kind of uncomfortable. I should add at this point, we get a glimpse inside of their apartment in Charles Building. Were the playbills that we see and some of the theater posters actually productions that actress appeared in? <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid to say, or maybe happy to say, they are all made up uh, productions. They're, we're using some images of hers. She has been, she is such a prolific actor, but they are all made up. I had a wonderful production designer on this film, uh, S.D. Braverman, and her and I, one of the first things we talked about was, oh, she, this, you know, that, that uh, Maria's character, uh, Juliet, needs to have, like, she's definitely the kind of actor that is framing every single one of her playbills, posters, and even if it was the smallest off, 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 off Broadway <laughs> thing, it's up there. It's like, you know, it's probably like she's dusting it every day. There's nothing wrong with that. I just, but I felt like she's someone who has, is like surrounded by the past. Um, and I wanted to make the past a little bit funny in her case. Well, similarly, and I guess this is another nod to Esty, your production designer, in Charles and Isha's apartment, I noticed a poster on the wall for Raoul Peck's film, I Am Not Your Negro. Mm -hmm. That's right. For that, we wanted to kind of give a nod to the films that Charles, who was, you know, we, we kind of hint at, we don't hit it over the head, but we hint at that he's a documentarian. And so we wanted to get the films that we thought his character would be drawn to that would be interested in. Um, so there's like a thin blue line, there's I Am Not Your Negro, there's multiple films. And some, and a lot of that was also done in collaboration with Brian, that Brian was saying, hey, you know, I think these are the kind of films that would be appropriate for my character. And so I am, oh man, I feel bad. There's a, the people who gave us the rights to use those posters, again, just generous, like really wonderful of them to let us use it to kind of bring in some real world detail, you know, try to kind of flesh out that that filmmaker background of Charles without kind of, you know, landing on it too heavily, but just let it be known that he's someone who was a kind of vibrant artist, someone so interested in the arts and that that, like it does for so many of us, you get in a rut, a project falls apart and you just, you can just collapse because you can just feel like the chips are stacked against you. Making a film, like all films demonstrate, making a film is so hard. You have to be lucky in so many ways. And so I, I, I wanted to show that, that, um, that feel he has for the arts in the background, but also not kind of uh, necessarily bring it up in a really heavy sense. Yeah, you don't hit people over the head with anything. <laughs> Another character I love <laughs> is Sarah, the next door neighbor. Totally. And she is wise, she's gentle, she can be a little sassy at just the right moments. And it, she becomes a very nurturing presence for Charles and Elena. Was there a particular character or even an actress you had in mind? I, I thought of Ruby Dee. Mm. 
I, I mean, I love Ruby D and I, I don't, I don't know if I was thinking of anyone in particular. I think I was just, I was looking for different perspectives than Charles. How far away could I get from Charles uh, perspective wise while also, you know, having them literally be the person next door. And so that, that Sarah is played wonderfully by Linda Gravitt who uh, is really someone I discovered in the casting, that we discovered in the casting process. My great casting director, Stephanie Holbrook, turned me on to her. And I think she just was someone who, man, I loved her style. She just showed up, she's smoking cigarettes, she's telling us great stories about doing films in the past. She was in, um, she was like a dancer in The Wiz. Oh my. Uh, she, she's really a character uh, herself. And I, I wanted someone who could, I think, be kind, and you think of her, you, when you first meet her, she's just this sweet presence. But that when you get to know her, you find that she has this kind of very down to earth approach. Her husband, yeah, I don't wanna, I guess I shouldn't give things away, but she's someone who has had some loss recently in her life. And that she's kind of, the way she at least is showing it outwardly is that it's all just a part of life. It doesn't mean that the world is stacked against her like perhaps Charles is feeling. But in fact, she's just someone who goes with the flow of life. At the same time, she also wants to take command of her destiny. And so, as you'll see, there's this whole online dating situation. <laughs> and that was a way for, you know, the three of them. I really wanted Charles, Elena, and Sarah to in some way, like work on something together, you know, like make something together. Even if it's just an online dating profile, it just felt like they could really you could see what they all think about life and love just in this very kind of prosaic dating process. And, and you gave Charles an opportunity to do a bio of someone who was still alive, or at least <laughs> not writing about the person after they died. Oh, that is so well put. You're so right. It's like, right. He's like, you, you know, he's this obsessive character. He obsesses about celebrities and their, you know, how to kind of, capture them and now he can use that power to you know capture the essence of this woman uh that he's really just met and really kind of like make her a profile that uh hopefully yields some great results and lets her find some some love the interior of sarah's apartment is elegant she has a lovely grand piano and Elena wants to play for Sarah and Charles. And what she plays is astonishing. I've, I was hoping you would talk about the music in the film because not only whoever played Sarah's part on the piano, but the electronic music and the use of music is very effective. Oh, thank you. That oh man, that makes me so happy. I um, well, I'll, uh, there there there's a, a lot of people to thank here, but I'll say that my composer Alexander Trimpe did all the original score, the kind of the the score you hear throughout the film. And him and I talked about something. You know, we were constantly trying to like thread this needle where we wanted music that kind of kept the urgency going, but also had a sweetness, but also had a coolness. I mean, I think in all parts of the film, not just the music, I was trying to avoid sentimentality. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't sentiment in the film. There isn't kind of, you know, moments where hopefully real heart 
kind of is exuded. But I really want, I didn't want music that was like maudlin or too cheerful. And so again, you're kind of always trying to strike this balance. And I think we thought that electronic synthy music with some real instruments that are grounded in it would really kind of have that perfect sweet spot that I, I you know, hopefully, hopefully we achieved. I think at, to Alex's credit, he was also always trying to kind of have themes pay each other off. I'm sure obviously composers probably do this in lots of films, but he was really like almost building like a map of music. And so when he knew that there was going to be this big piano scene, he started to kind of build in little piano parts that kind of, you know, again, unconsciously, hopefully, you feel like it's building up. It's suggesting that Elena is going to hopefully demonstrate that side of her, her character and show off that piano. In terms of the actual piano performance, the funny thing about that, I, I don't know if this is getting too far into the weeds. No, get into the weeds. Let's get in the weeds. Yeah. We originally had a Prokofiev uh, track in there, a Prokofiev piano piece that I really love. And unfortunately, we couldn't afford it. We ended up not being able to afford it. I, I, and again, I hope that's not too gauche to say, but we were a small indie film. I think we thought that everyone would <laughs> take pity on us. But look, that's, I understand it's a beloved, beloved piece. But um, my a really close friend of mine who's a jazz musician, Greg Glassman, saw the scene and said, you know, I think I can write you a piece that does everything you want it to do. And it can be original. And it can be something that really works with what Elaine is playing. And he made this, I'm, I am still to this day so impressed that he basically like retrofit his own original classical piece into what Elena was playing. He really and did. It, and it's amazing. I mean, it's like he, it, he's, you know, it's landing exactly. I mean, I guess it's also goes to credit to my sound editor, credit to my editor, like for really making it line up in a way I mean, and also credit to Olivia Edward, who plays Elena, who really also studied that piece and told me when we were having her play it, she's like, look, I can kind of look like I'm playing it, but I hate to tell you this, my fingers don't <laughs> actually reach far enough to play the chords that Prokofiev is, is suggesting need to be played. So in the end, it, it takes a village, as they say. <laughs> and the music was really like so many people really putting a lot of just that I don't know, just so much back and forth and so much time and energy. And I, but I think in service of making music that, you know, I think really, I don't know, it doesn't hit, hopefully it doesn't hit you over the head, but then in the piano, when the piano comes in, it's meaningful, it, it, it's powerful, it's meant to be. And I think also shocking that, not, not shocking like scary, but shocking that this little girl has this within her, yes. I guess. And okay. Casimir, if you will indulge me, my background is in music. And when the character of Elena begins to play, I thought that's the movement Montague's and Capulet's from Prokofiev's Romeo <laughs> and Juliet. You know, right. dum ba dum ba dum And then I thought, oh, no, wait, no, it's not. So, wow. Your friend did an amazing job of <laughs> channeling Prokofiev Shostakovich and making it entirely his and Elena's own. Yeah, no, we were definitely inspired by that music, like for sure. We, you know, we love, I mean, Prokofiev, but yeah, it was really meant to create like its own 
original piece, but definitely like with like inspiration from from that music for sure. Before we go, I know that this was filmed before the pandemic, yet so much of it resonates now that we are indoors, that it's <laughs> difficult to go outside, much less get outside of ourselves. Has COVID given the outside story yet another layer? Mm. Man, it's something I've certainly been thinking a lot about over the last six months. I mean, it's impossible not to. The fact is like when you set out to make a feature film, you are making something that in a way is gonna do a strange kind of time travel. You are making something, it's gonna take you probably two years to make. So the world that when you're shooting it is one way and the world when the film comes out is invariably going to be a different way. In this case, it is like that to the hundred millionth power. <laughs> the world just changed so drastically. And I don't think any of us were prepared for what that would mean with this film. But I think when you're in a situation like this pandemic, not that any of us have ever really been in that situation before, you do look for some silver linings. You do try to find ways to take something out of the experience we're having. So I'm curious to see how people react to it in, especially in regards to the pandemic, in regards to COVID. I like to believe that it does add another layer that we're all right now, I, I was talking earlier about how the film has a lot to do with how we take the world for granted and how when we kind of open up to it and let the world in, it really almost every time is going to be inspiring, it's gonna be energizing. Right now, I would say because of the pandemic, I know I can just speak for myself, I certainly have realized how much more I took for granted and how much how much of normal life I miss. I miss w walking to the store without thinking about it. Mm. I miss going to the movies. Uh, I miss chatting with a neighbor on my stoop. All those things that are in this film. And so I think the film, I hope the film resonates in that way, in that kind of illustration that Charles's experience as he's kind of realizing the value of the world right outside his. I think we are all kind of going through that. You know, we are all missing. We are all realizing the value of the world right around us. And actually, in fact, probably the way a lot of us are dealing with the pandemic is kind of dealing with the, the, the people who are right around us right now and getting to know them maybe more intimately than we probably ever thought we would. Mm. Um, and so I think that also was something of, you know, a mission in the film, kind of getting into the details of, Sarah's life, Elena's life, Slater's life, seeing this uh, in a way, in a detailed up close way that I do think we are all seeing it um, in the pandemic. And then I guess last thing is, it's just the echo is just so wild to me. You know, this is a guy who's outside, desperate to get back inside. And we ourselves as a species are now inside. And I would say all of us are desperate to get back outside. So, just that echo uh, is like fascinating to me. And, and I, I'm so happy that the film, I also didn't even know if the film was gonna be able to come out in the pandemic. Uh, and just the fact that it can come out, that it can be seen in big screens, like at the Atlanta Film Festival, like on, in a drive-in, you know, like we're discovering these new ways to see things, to interact. 
So I don't know. I could go on and on. I do think there's a lot there thematically that, you know, really dovetails with the situation that we're in. And I don't, I would never have guessed in a million years that that would be the case when I was, uh, when we were making this film. Is it your dad's name that appears at the end, the dedication? Yes, that is my father. Yeah, he, uh, yeah, he, he passed away uh, la last year. What a beautiful tribute to him. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, he, uh, he was someone who I relied on a lot for advice with making this film. And luckily he got to see a cut before he passed away, so. Oh, good. Well, Kazimir Noskowski, thank you for taking us on Charles's odyssey around the block. <laughs> for showing us the therapeutic value of sidewalk chalk <laughs> and for making this beautiful film. I think you will have great success with it. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. Thank you so much for having me on. And I, I just, it was such a delight to talk about the film with you. Writer and director Casimir Noskowski, The Outside Story, will screen as a drive-in movie tonight at 9.15 at Pullman Yard, part of the Atlanta Film Festival. There will be more information on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Paul Merkello is an internationally celebrated soloist as well as principal trumpeter of the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. His new album, The Enlightened Trumpet, is a collection of works written during the 18th and early 19th century, the Age of Enlightenment. I spoke with Paul Merkello back in January when he was in town teaching master classes at Kennesaw State and performing on tour. Here, he talks about the versatility of the trumpet. The flexibility of the instrument, it's so diverse. We're able to cross over from jazz into classical. And obviously those are technically and musically very, very different approaches. So the, the instrument's role, it's a very upfront instrument, obviously it projects very well. And uh, we have this repertoire from, from the Age of Enlightenment that really features the virtuosity and, the, and the, the clean, crystal clear sound of that era of the classical and also of the Baroque era, actually. Yes, and we have some examples from your new recording from the enlightened trumpet. I'm not going to go chronologically. We're going to start with the Haydn, with the classical era, just to give an idea of your role in the first movement.
beautiful sound. Um, do you ever breathe? <laughs> well, yeah, we have to breathe. That's a that's a necessary <laughs> evil. That's part of the job. You you can't hear. <laughs> One can't hear you breathing. I am reminded of um, the first time I interviewed Wynton Marsalis. It was so wonderful. It was back in 96 he performed for the Cultural Olympiad here when Atlanta hosted the Olympic Games. Mm -hmm. And he talked about Maurice Andre. That's a trumpeter you've been compared to, as we said— in the classical world, we can't rattle off lists of dozens of virtuoso trumpeters' names, but Maurice Andre was center stage and and really um, brought to a wide listening audience the the potential and the marvelous sound of the classical trumpet. Wynton Marsalis told me that he used to play on street corners in New Orleans. I mean, he was 12 years old. And there was one man in particular who loved listening to him play and asked him, asked Wynton Marcellus, if he had ever heard of Maurice Andre. And Marcellus said no. And this man who lived nearby came back the next day and brought him some LPs. And after listening to those LPs and reading about Maurice Andre being from this poor coal miner's family in France, that he said, if Andre could become a classical trumpeter, so could he. Mm. And that was how Maurice Andre changed his life. And that man who obviously recognized something in the 12-year-old Wynton Marsalis. What does it take, if you could explain for a curious but maybe not educated musical listener, what does it take to be a trumpet virtuoso? Mm -hmm. Well, I love that story. And, you know, mirroring and mentoring is so much a part of what we do when we're young. We're learning to play the instrument. And we need to hear, you know, recordings and also live performances to understand that, oh, that instrument, my instrument is actually capable of doing that. Someone is actually capable of making that that incredible sound. And for me, legacy is really, really important. The people like Maurice Andre and Winton and... Hokan Hardenberger and Timothy Dokschitzer and, you know, many others who are out there uh, representing the instrument, ambassadors to the instrument on both sides, classical and jazz. For me, growing up, that mirroring or mentoring by listening to recordings and trying to imitate all the great qualities in those recordings, I definitely wouldn't be the player I am today had I not done that. So the role of, I think, you know, my role now is to try to pass that on I feel, you know, to the next generation, to the younger generation, um, you know, if they listen to to my recordings or to, to me live and it's a young student uh, that I could inspire, you know, that's what the masters like Winton and Maurice did for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so the role, you know, the role of the solo trumpet 
is different than that in the orchestra. In the orchestra, it's part of a team. Even though I'm the principal trumpet uh, and there are solo passages like Petrushka, Mahler 5, Pictures and Exhibition, uh-huh. you know, those those famous trumpet excerpts, it's very often that I'm just a fabric. I'm a layer within the orchestra. And as a soloist, my responsibility is, is 100% on every note, on every phrase. And that artistically, um, well, I'm more... Uh, able to dictate the interpretation of the music and that's where whether it's trumpet or any instrument you know we need to find our personal voice and bring our personality out through these great compositions well i think your personality comes through magnificently in the condenser we're going to go to the end the part of the concerto where the orchestra pauses and uh, the trumpeter or the soloist at large gets to strut his or her stuff. Let's hear the second Haydn example. It's just a marvel to hear how you make the instrument sing. The Baroque trumpet, trumpet was a bit, I don't want to say better valued, but more center stage in Baroque compositions than in the classical era, such as the Haydn. Let's hear um, a portion, your entrance in the second movement of this concerto for trumpet by Telemann. That part, that earlier part of the Enlightenment, we still had royal courts at which the trumpet was most welcome. I mean, Telemann had an incredible gig for quite some time, writing dining music, tafel music, and all these concertos to entertain the court. What is it about the Baroque trumpet? that distinguishes it from the later music? Well, that's a great question. So, you know, the natural trumpet or the Baroque trumpet, it started with, it's just a long tubing with a bell. And it, and 
it had no holes or valves, as we know. And so the harmonics and the upper register, the extreme upper register, were very close so that you could get all the notes of a scale. So when you listen to any work by Bach, you know, the Brandenburg Concerto Number 2 or any of the great cantatas, the trumpet parts are so extremely high. They're very, very challenging to play. And nowadays we play it on a modern piccolo trumpet. Uh, well, people also play it traditionally in the natural, but uh, I personally play it on the on the modern piccolo. And, you know, the Age of Enlightenment, the, the CD that I, that I made here, was to present also this new trumpet that was developed by Anton Weidinger at that time. And it was, it started with keys, like you would see on a saxophone. Mm-hmm. And it could create a full chromatic scale in the lower register that had never been done before. And then that developed into a keyed trumpet of which Haydn wanted to feature. And then similarly, Hummel was inspired by that. And so Hummel also wrote another concerto that, you know, featured that kind of chromaticism. It gave us a sense of, I would say, more expressive qualities in the trumpet and a more romantic sensibility, even though we were in that classical era. Paul Merkello is an internationally celebrated soloist and principal trumpeter of the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. His latest album, The Enlightened Trumpet, is available now on iTunes and Spotify. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 11. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.